Chapter 9 Sin From Guilt to Woundedness The Augustinian revolution of the 4th century would leave the Church in the West dominated by sin for centuries to come. Augustine thought Paul's whole preoccupation was with sin, but as recent scholars have increasingly come to recognise, Paul's lament was a response to his weakness. Paul never felt guilt in the face of this weakness. Pain, yes, but not guilt. Nevertheless, Christianity became refashioned around the dominant edifice of sin, and the whole framework of sin and salvation has for centuries been rooted in a paradigm of criminality. If we do not understand that, we will never come to recognize how that deeply rooted idea of criminality still colors our understanding not only of sin, but also of judgment, guilt, and retribution. And that mistaken view operates in total disregard for the larger context in which sin operates, which context is the purpose behind our mortal journey. Julian of Norwich moved the discussion in this direction when she asked the question, Why is there sin? Why didn't God create a more perfect world, and us with more perfect character? Sin is behovely, the Lord told her, needful, fruitful, productive of good. Clearly, sin cannot mean what we have taken it to mean, if Julian is correct. To call it behovely sounds counter to everything we have ever thought about sin. We have seen it as evil, vile, corrupt action following from corrupt nature. We find a very different explanation of sin in the book of Moses, and a confirmation of Julian's astonishing claim that what we call sin is something other than what we believed it to be. Sin is indeed something that is behovely. Enoch relates how the Lord himself had explained to Eve and Adam the meaning of what has transpired in the garden. He validates Eve's insight that her decision was commendable, not damnable. In Enoch's words, because of the couple's decision, we, the human family, are. Her gesture opened the conduit for our ascent from premortality into this world. As a result, Enoch notes, we are made partakers of misery and woe. Misery and woe, but not sin and guilt. The distinction is crucial. As the Lord explains, children are whole from the foundation of the world. And yet in surprising language, he then continues in what seems to be an Augustinian vein. Children are conceived in sin. And as they begin to grow up, sin conceiveth in their hearts. This is understandably confusing. If children are conceived in sin, but are at the same time whole, then sin is not here referring to our personal condition of culpability. And in fact, the Lord gives us new terms in place of sin. We are born into a world of misery and woe. We are immersed in, confronted by, the bitter, that we may know to prize the good, that is the sweet. That we may know captures the educative, behovely nature of sin. If not for our transgression, if not for this experience of the bitter, Eve confirms, we never should have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption. 
Where an instructive bitterness is one way of viewing sin in the Book of Moses, the most pervasive image the New Testament and the Book of Mormon employ in reference to our condition is woundedness. The angel uses that word to describe the human condition to Nephi. When Nephi sees the Christ in vision, he sees him not preaching or rebuking or judging. Nephi sees him ministering unto the people. When Christ appears to the Nephites, he ministers to the afflicted, and both they who had been healed and they who were whole did bow down and worship him. We are born into a world suffused by suffering. We carry in our body, in our genetic makeup, the pain and trauma incident to mortality. As agents and as being subject to the agency of others, we act and are acted upon in a world of hurt and handicap. As we saw in the religious history recounted previously, the trauma and wounds in our lives have often multiplied, been augmented rather than alleviated by the religious traditions we inherit. For the majority of the world's inhabitants, and for most of us striving to find joy in the gospel, a great portion of our lives is a protracted exercise in pain management. The trauma so prevalent in society is not just the domain of veterans with PTSD or refugees from a war zone. It's here, even at our doors, in middle-class America. As the author and psychiatrist Dr. Bessel van der Kolk states, one does not have to be a combat soldier or visit a refugee camp in Syria or the Congo to encounter trauma. Trauma happens to us, our friends, our families, and our neighbours. He argues that much of the behaviour we see as deviant, unhealthy, or in any way disruptive or criminal can be traced back to trauma experienced by people at some point in their lives. Brokenness, not sinfulness, is our general condition. Healing from trauma is what is needed. Deanna Thompson says it most simply. All of our lives bear the marks of suffering. Toni Morrison's writings are poignant meditations on this truth. Cycles of violence play out across generations. The wounds do not simply go away. The biblical scholar David Bentley Hart argues that this view of sin is in fact truer to Paul's original language in Romans. Paul speaks of sin as a kind of contagion, a disease with which we are all born, but never as an inherited condition of criminal culpability. Simply put, as Julian sensed, woundedness is the collateral damage that is essential to our learning process along the path to life eternal. It is essential and inevitable in the great plans unfolding. It is through our necessary experience of the bitter that we may learn to prize the sweetness of what is good and pure and beautiful, the sweetness that is Christ. Sin, which in the book of Moses is associated with the bitter, is what we taste so that we may learn to recognize and avoid it and cleave to the sweetness of Christ and his precepts. The whole point of our participation in sin is to learn, to experience, and to be personally, empirically educated in the beauty of Christ's way. By our immersion in a world of choice and consequences, we learn that certain choices we make, 
and as often consequences we suffer at the hands of others, take us to a place that is contrary to the nature of happiness. Five centuries after Julian of Norwich, a French philosopher returned to Julian's question, intuiting more fully what she sensed. Wouldn't it have been simpler for God to have created a perfect world? The newborn baby is profoundly incomplete. But it is exactly because of this that he could go so much further than a young animal, for liberty is tied to unperfectedness. From his unperfected state, man gives rise to infinite possibilities. He makes of his weakness a strength, of his unperfected state free agency. Is it not this that helps us to understand why God made this unperfected world? Mortality is that school in which we learn to exercise our agency wisely and magnanimously. It is inescapable that in this learning process we will both incur and inflict pain. As Francine Benyon reminded us, we were willing to know hunger, like Christ in the desert. We did not ask God to let us try falling or being bruised only on the condition that he catch us before we touch ground and save us from real hurt. We were willing to know hurt. At the same time, even as we are given the liberty to act for ourselves, to choose, that liberty is generally untutored, compromised, or otherwise mitigated. As Hart notes, unimpaired moral agency is a manifest falsehood. There is no such thing as perfect freedom in this life or perfect understanding, and it is sheer nonsense to suggest that we possess limitless or unqualified liberty. Therefore, we are incapable of contracting a limitless or unqualified guilt. There are always extenuating circumstances. Heavenly parents anticipate the wounds incident to that learning process. Understanding the inescapability of that educative design invites us to reconsider the label so drenched in connotations of the vile, the evil, the malicious. A little history of usage may be helpful in reinforcing this view. The word translated as sin in the New Testament is hamartia. It appears in a critical place in ancient usage, and anyone who can remember their high school English class can probably call to mind its common meaning. The so-called tragic flaw of a heroic character was called hamartia. Here is the powerful insight. When the popularizer of this idea, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, used the term, he used it not in reference to a flaw in character, but to a flaw in one's choice. Tragic harm occurs not due to any moral defect or depravity, but to an error. Hamartia means misstep or a missing of the mark. In the book of Moses, sin is presented as a misdirection, as employing choice in ways contrary to the nature of happiness. N.T. Wright gives an apt analogy. When God looks at sin, what he sees is what a violin maker would see if the player were to use his lovely creation as a tennis racket. Such missteps are a necessary part of our education. They are to be expected. They do not make us criminals deserving retribution. They reveal us as souls in need of redirection. 
A most important consequence of this reorientation in understanding sin is the effect it can have on the compassion with which we view ourselves and each other. When the angel referred to the world of today as being in a state of awful woundedness, he provided a term, woundedness, that is both accurate and a catalyst to love. First is accuracy. Embodiment in corruptible flesh and blood does not entail the inheritance of Adamic sin, though it does entail an inheritance of physical, psychological and emotional traits passed down through genetic family structures together with the vicissitudes of environment. While agency is, for Latter-day Saints, the most prized God-given gift, it is mitigated by the factors mentioned previously. In Paul's concise metaphor, we see ourselves and others by means of a mirror obscurely, imperfectly. Second, seeing our condition as wounded is a spur to charity rather than to judgment. The impact of seeing the sinner as the wounded is profound and meaningful in the here and now. This is not an abstract theological prescription, but a recipe for a more vibrant and caring discipleship in the present world. In the Christian past, sin was equated with a contagion. Even now, hearing that a person is mired in sin, we tend to label, to retreat, to avoid, to shun. If we hear instead that the individual is deeply wounded, our heart is drawn out in compassion and our inclination is to succor and heal. Categories like the saved and the damned the sinner and the righteous, erect boundaries and invite judgment. Recognizing the universality of our woundedness and the universal love of God invites community and mutual concern. In the classic film It's a Wonderful Life, the angel Clarence must find a way to rescue George Bailey from his suicidal despair. Unexpectedly, he finds the solution in his own leap into the dark abyss of water Bailey is contemplating. Bailey immediately moves to rescue the fallen angel. A fellow traveller's vulnerability has shattered the shell of his own self-concern. As children of divine parents, we too are powerfully drawn to succour the wounded, the broken, the vulnerable. Shelley Rambo records how through her studies of trauma, I view persons as more vulnerable and the earth more wounded than I did before. She adds, I have come to believe that we are more connected in ways that we cannot account for and constituted by much that we do not know. Truly, as Serena Jones writes, it is hard to think of a task more central to Christian theology than this one, finding the language to speak grace in a form that allows it to come toward humanity in ways as gentle as they are powerful. If the Church's message about God's love for the world is to be offered to those who suffer these wounds, then we must think anew about how we use language and how we put bodies in motion and employ imagery and sound. With fresh openness, we must grapple with the meaning of beliefs, not only about grace, but also about such matters as sin. 
Flora Keshkegian agrees. If Christianity is to be a religion of remembering for witness and transformation, then it needs to change from its focus on sin and death to an affirmation of creation and life. None of this is to say that we are not capable of sin in the sense of a deliberately chosen action that is wrong and harmful. We clearly are. We are complex beings with complex motivations, and we are seldom wholly guilty or wholly innocent of any misdeed. As Immanuel Kant argued with irrefutable logic, guilt is the recognition that we should have, and therefore could have, acted differently. In other words, we are never utterly deprived of the power to choose liberty and eternal life. However impaired, disadvantaged by others, weakened or diminished by circumstance or inheritance, we are always, to some degree, free to act for ourselves. This knowledge that our heavenly parents intend for us to act, not merely to be acted upon, is both comforting and empowering. As apprentices of eternal life, remorse for falling short along the path is an appropriate response, not guilt, if by guilt we mean the preoccupation with unworthiness that is self-concerned and unproductive. Remorse, by contrast, is other-concerned and is evidence of an empathy productive of greater holiness.